Let me go ahead and pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for each and every day you have blessed us with. We certainly thank you for Calvary Bible Church. We thank you, Lord, for friends and church family uh, coming back for a visit. Uh, We praise you for, Lord, just new folks here this morning. We praise you for those that have maybe come once or twice and have returned Lord, we we thank you. We thank you for allowing us the opportunity to worship you in spirit and truth this morning through music and song and in fellowship and in our giving, Lord, and through prayer and, and, and hearing about some of the ministries like the evangelism team. And, and now, Lord, we want to hear from your word. May your word ring true, loud, clear, with conviction, that, Lord, we would, we would seek to um, have it just infiltrate our hearts and minds, our souls, Lord, and change us from the inside out so that we put it into practice in our daily lives. <clears throat> Lord, we pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning what I, I, I thought I would do, um, I knew I was... Coming back for this, and, and we finished up Titus uh, chapter 2 last week, and um, I, I was trading some emails with our own Brad Kelly, and he said, hey, last year, he said, when I was there for family camp time, I, I preached and taught on unity, and he said, man, to me, that is just one of those topics that we can revisit again and again and uh, might you consider doing something like that since you're in between chapter 2 and chapter 3? And I just thought, that's a great idea. So this morning's just a little different. It's a little more topical in nature in that respect. And we're going to go to a host of texts. And then um, next week we will return to our regularly scheduled program of Titus chapter 3. As uh, we let that take us through the, uh, through the end of the year. So I want you for a minute to think about unity. And, and just even what that word means, what it implies. Think of some of the things, just even out there in the world, that tend to unite us as people. Sports is, is a big one, right? Sometimes when you go to a sporting event, even if you're at Dodger Stadium or, or what have you, you kind of feel a, a sort of kinship with those around you all rooting for the Dodgers and who can't help but stand when the wave comes around, right? And your section, you're united in your section even. Or, or even, even sports with your kids and, and maybe they're playing high school football or baseball or track or whatever and, you, and, and you're rooting for the team and there's a unity amongst even the, the parents and, and, and for, for uh, cheering the team on. Family camp even, there's a sense of, of unity there. In fact, the, the popular phrase already, the minute people would pull up to family camp, it was like, oh, this is already better than last year. Because last year, like Jim said, it was pretty tough. It was 110 in a dust bowl. And we have oak trees and a babbling brook right by us. And, and uh, so everything is already better than last year. And there's a certain unity that, uh, that uh, comes from that. And maybe a unity that sometimes comes from difficult circumstances. We were thinking about that with our camp last year. But there's much more difficult circumstances when people have gone through a war together. The old saying of, you know, sharing a foxhole with somebody tends to create unity or a natural disaster, such as we've seen multiple times throughout California and fires 
and certainly in Hawaii recently, but there's a, a sense of coming together to help one another during these times. Just time spent together with a particular group of people. And I was thinking of even kids going through school. And, and you have your, your high school class and your graduating class and your uh, certain unity together. Sometimes a person, a particular person will unify uh, a group. Maybe you've been to a memorial service or a funeral where somebody has passed away and you realize, oh, well, there's this group over here that they knew from their workplace. And there's this group over here they knew maybe from church. And here's this group that's family. And, and you have these different groups that were separate but now have come together united because of this one person's life. Sometimes there's geographic locations that bring about unity. We even have a certain unity and, and pride for, say, being in Southern California or Burbank or, or maybe that goes out uh, in a small town sense or the big city sense or state or even in terms of our country, though it would seem that in many ways we are more divided right now than sometimes we are united accomplishments bring unity when a group of people get together to accomplish something they have a a common goal for some reason the first thing that popped in my mind was i remember seeing in a movie uh, you know an amish community and they're doing a barn raising right and everybody shows up and they're all pitching in and they're all helping and they get this barn built by the end of the day and well maybe uh biblically speaking we see God's people do amazing things whether they're coming out with all of their their wares and their um gifts for building the tabernacle or even the temple today if you call and have a bunch of people show up to help your move help you move that's a pretty cool uniting thing I always say man you know who your true friends are if they show up to help you move are they willing to drive you to LAX right <clears throat> But thankfully, we're not on a sports team or just merely citizens of the world or of these United States, but even more importantly, friends, and of truly greater consequence, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are united by one, one person, one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, and we are united in one purpose that of advancing his kingdom your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and with that friends let me tell you we have a unity then that we can take to the bank this is a unity that the world cannot offer us it's a, a unity that will not be emptied of power it is a, a unity that will indeed produce some tremendously good and desired effects. Unity is indeed an important biblical truth. And so let's talk about biblical unity and why it is so important. So I'm going to give you this morning six, six aspects of unity or reasons why unity is important in the church. And number one, there is value in unity. There is great value in unity. Now, Brad spoke on this passage, and I, I chided him and said, man, you already took the best passage when you preached this last year, but I can't help but return to it for a moment. It's Psalm 133, and please turn to Psalm 133. 
Psalm 133. A couple of years ago, I, I read an article uh, by author, blogger, who I sometimes mention, Tim Challies. And the, uh, the blog was uh, called, Learn the Lesson of Aaron's Oily Beard from this psalm. And so we will do just that. It's, it's a short one here. Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down from the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. Now, I got to be honest and just say, oil on my head coming down into my beard here and even onto my clothes just does not sound good and pleasant to me. It just sounds kind of disgusting, to be honest. I love to cook with oil, olive oil, but I can't say uh, that I really enjoy it if it's even on my hands. And of course, the way oil was viewed back then was completely, uh, really, well, not completely different, but somewhat different than today, and especially the way David is using it to show the good and pleasant nature of unity amongst brothers and sisters of the faith, brothers and sisters of a common father. It is objectively good and even experientially pleasant, this kind of oil. And what we need to understand is that David has in mind the anointing of the high priest, even Aaron in this case, the high priest of high priests. And in fact, God told Moses in Exodus 29, 7, then you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his, referring to Aaron's head, and anoint him. And so this was a special kind of oil that was mixed with choice spices such as myrrh and cinnamon and sweet cane and cassia and, and it's used only in the anointing of the tabernacle and of the priests. Now the emphasis for David here on this oil seems to be the flow of it and the fact that it's coming down and it's coming down from the head and the hair into the beard even coming down to the top of uh of his uh, collar area his robes the edge of his robes and then even onto the priest's breastplate that had those 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of israel again united as one nation we also recognize that this oil is poured on the head by someone else. By someone. So completing this metaphor then, unity starts with someone else, in this case, namely God. It flows down onto the priest, and from the priest then it flows to the people, saturating them, uniting them, unifying them. Okay, so think of us now on this side of the cross and here at Calvary Bible Church. Unity is indeed a gift given to us by God. It is, it is an objective, positional reality 
our unity. And like the metaphor, God has poured out his Holy Spirit onto our high priest, Jesus. We certainly saw that at his baptism. And then Jesus, as head of the church, anoints us with that same Holy Spirit that unifies. Chalice writes this, Oh, how good it is when we embrace that unity, when we practice it, when we foster and treasure it. It is so good, such a blessing to us, and such a pleasure to God when we diligently and deliberately live like children of a common Father, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity, end quote. Is it not good and pleasant when we as Calvary Bible Church dwell in unity? Absolutely it is. It's, this can be understood as well, this dwelling in unity in a church universal sense, right? All believers everywhere. Jim mentioning Russia made me think of uh, uh, the first uh, missions trip that I went on, short-term missions trip, was from Calvary Bible Church, and we went to Samara, Russia, and I was blown away that I could travel halfway around the world and not understand the language and whatnot, but yet meet these brothers and sisters in Christ, and you instantly feel a bond with them. You feel united with them, and it's, and it's just awesome and amazing. And of course, we can also understand this in a local church sense of being united as a local church body. Now, the reason this unity is so good is because much can be accomplished as a unified body. Well, secondly, we also learn from the scripture that unity must be preserved. Unity must be preserved. Go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4 with me. Like I said, we're going to be jumping around here. So Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. Ephesians, uh, oh, just a, I hate saying it's a tremendous book. They're all tremendous books, right? It's neat with Ephesians because you got those first three chapters that are just largely Christological. It just exalts Christ. It just tells us these incredibly wonderful truths about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the next three chapters are all about the application of those great truths that you have learned. And in chapter 4 here, verse 3, Paul tells believers that we need to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in the bond of peace. And so what we see here is that the Holy Spirit is really an agent of unity. And and while believers are, again, positionally united with the Father and the Son, we now see a sort of sanctified unity, a unity that we are told that we need to pursue. In other words, the unity that we have by way of the Holy Spirit, we need to diligently preserve or maintain, and we're to do so by being at peace with one another. Being at peace with with each other. And this goes back to what Paul just said in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. He says there, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility, gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. In love. 
This is proactive unity, friends. If you indeed will walk in this worthy manner, only then will you be able to preserve the unity of the Holy Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, why do you think Paul says that we have to be diligent in preserving the unity that we have as Christians? Hmm, this really should be a no-brainer, right? Because he knows it's not easy. Because we're sinners through and through. And it's this, this, this unity of the spirit and the bond of peace is not our default setting. It's just not in our sinful human nature to do so. It can only be accomplished by way of having the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And so we are in a battle with our flesh. And oftentimes we don't walk in a worthy manner. And we don't practice things like humility and gentleness and tolerance and peace with one another. But to encourage us, to encourage us, he gives us verses 4 to 6, which shows the different ways that we are united as a church body through the Father, through the Son, and through the Holy Spirit. For instance, in verse 4, he says there is one body, the church, right? All believers in Christ. And again, certainly a local church. There is one Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, right? That is, of course, referring to your salvation unto eternal life. Verse 5, one Lord, that there is salvation through no one else except the Lord Jesus Christ. One faith, which is the doctrinal truths of the Bible that we believe in. In verse 13, Paul will mention the unity of the faith, that we are united by this common confession of doctrinal truth found in the scriptures, one baptism, and I believe this is referring to our, our common spiritual baptism as is described in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, when Paul says, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. And then in verse 6, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Now, can we all agree then that these are some major glorious truths that unite us? And these are much more significant than being united by a common job or a, or a common sport or school or hobby or, or men or women or, or, or of a certain age. These are bigger than families being united or even our country and we are spiritually united in God and his son Jesus through the Holy Spirit by our common bond of faith and belief in the gospel. The fact that we are all sinners, that we all have the need of a savior because our sin, frankly, is sending us to hell. Our sin has consequences, dire, dire consequences. But praise be to God his desire was for us to not suffer those consequences, but instead to, to be united with him and his son in his glorious heavenly realm. But that could only happen if our sin is paid for, if the price is paid by someone other than us. And so he, he sent his son, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Believing that he is indeed the son of God, that he took our sin upon himself, that he died in our place, that he became sin for us, went to the cross, 
substituting himself for us. But then not just that he died and went into the ground and stayed dead, but three days later gloriously resurrects and gives us that promise that we too will have resurrection, that we too can have eternal life if we would believe. Now thirdly, unity doesn't negate individuality. It doesn't mean we're all like then robots and we're all the same. And for this, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Just back up a little bit there to the left, 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 12. And this is on the heels of Paul starting to speak of spiritual gifts for the edification of the body. And he's using the motif of a human body made up of different body parts to convey spiritual truth about the, how the body is to unifyingly operate okay I, I love this passage it's 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 just a great one it's very visual he's got some great word pictures here Paul says this first uh, Corinthians 12 beginning in verse 12 for even as the body is one and yet has many members right and all the members of the body though they are many are one body talking about our physical body so also is Christ So we know he's doing this metaphor here. He says, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, spiritual body, right? Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we're all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, oh, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, well, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, What is not for this reason any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? The implied answer, right? There would be no no hearing. And, And if the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? The implication that there would be no smell. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, well, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, well, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. Oh, let's read that again. The ones which seem to be weaker are what? necessary and those members of the body which we deem less honorable by the way shame on us if we do that and our less presentable members become much more presentable whereas our more presentable members have no need of it but God so composed the body giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked so that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another and if one member suffers all the members suffer with it if one member is honored all the members rejoice with it that's a just a tremendous passage go back through and read that again this week and just let some of those truths just sink in because we're not we're not gonna uh, go through it um, except to say this we look back to verse 7 we would see that the purpose of all of this, chapter 12, verse 7, is 
the manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the common good. The common good of the body. Usefulness of each member individually for the benefit of the whole. Amen? This passage teaches us teaches us that local, the local church is made up of individual members and that each member of that local church has a part to play based on their giftedness. And mind you, everybody is gifted. The scripture is clear on this fact. And this naturally then creates unity. People all working together for a common good. I love going to the Broadway shows, and uh, Lily is my Broadway gal, and so, man, when they said Les Mis was coming, we, you know, we got our tickets, and I know a number of you have been able to do that as well. I love the play. It was, I think, my third time seeing it here at the uh, Pantages this last week, and I'll just use the company of, of the show a, as an example of this. Um, because you, you, have, uh, you have this cast, and of course you have the leads, right? You have the guy that plays Jean Valjean, and the gal that plays Cosette, and Eponine, and Marius, and, and Ternardi, and all the different characters. Then you have the supporting roles, and the supporting players, right? And then you have the chorus members that all make up this production, and if one chorus member is missing, then frankly, there would be a, a line that doesn't get said or sung. There would be a piece of action that, that doesn't take place or get accomplished, and the loss will be felt to some degree. One of the extraordinary aspects of this production was, man, you put this cast on stage, their voices together were Nothing short of amazing. I have never, never heard a musical cast, even on Broadway, sound as good as this cast did. And it's because they were all there together, striving for this common goal, this common sound, and it was breathtaking, truly. And you start removing people from that, and very quickly it starts getting diminished and changed. And not for the good. Not for the good. It's no different in the church. Yes, there are those who have ministries of preaching and teaching, which are certainly paramount here at Calvary Bible Church. This would be your elders and pastors and teachers. And, and there's the upfront ministry of worship leader and his team of musicians and singers. And there's, of course, the deacon ministry and our men's and women's ministry. And then there's administrative and creative folks who are somewhat well-known to the body, but maybe a little bit more behind the scenes. And there are those who lead various ministries and those who make up the chorus of various ministries, whether that be Bible studies to Adventure Club to VBS to the kitchen to the coffee shop and tech crew and weddings and funerals and cleaning and maintenance, even stocking the pews. And how about all those folks that are, that are maybe not able to be with us but are prayer warriors at home and behind the scenes as encouragers. All are important, all are vital, all are necessary. Leads, supporting roles, chorus. All are necessary for the proper functioning of the body, including this local body of Calvary Bible Church. I'm going to go a step further 
and say that as far as someone is a part of this local church, but not playing their role, not helping to bear the load and move things in a, in a certain direction, this will also cause disunity. Disunity. Back in Ephesians 4, verses 15 to 16, Paul writes this, We are to grow up in all aspects into him, referring to Jesus, who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, listen to this, according to the proper working of each individual part. Each individual part has to be working properly. Causes then the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. End quote. Think of a family just out there doing yard work together on some Saturday afternoon. And if everyone is playing their part and they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, everything operates smoothly, doesn't it? The work gets done. It gets done in a timely fashion. Everyone typically also even enjoys the process and just being together and what gets accomplished. There's a sense of satisfaction amongst the family for what is done and completed. But if if little Johnny over there starts slacking off and, you know, he gets disinterested and even lazy, next thing you know, he disappears into the house. We find him playing on the computer. I don't know by personal experience, by the way. I'm talking about those families in Idaho. This is the way they, they you know, ha- things happen. No, my, my kids, man, they, they don't, don't, they're out there working. Uh, Susie, Susie has a bad attitude about the work. And though she's doing it, she's not doing it with care or excellence, but she's doing it sloppily, and the work suffers. And then what do the rest of the family have to do? But they got to pick up the slack. They gotta, this creates more work for everybody else. And those that are working hard, they start to get grumbly. And now they're feeling a little peeved, a little upset that that these others aren't fulfilling their role and things start to break down and unity begins to crumble. Forget about yard work. What What if a family simply enjoyed spending time together and maybe they're looking forward to a special vacation coming up and then one of the members though just decides, eh, I don't wanna go. I don't wanna go. They'd rather stay at home and not participate with the family. The rest of the family gets sad. There's just a a sadness from the rest as, well, they were looking forward to their company and being all together. And now one of the members is kind of separating themselves from the family. And because they don't want to go, well, then another member decides, well, if he's not going, I don't want to go. I'm not going to go now. And, And, you know, and You can kind of see the domino effect. And again, how this can just start to create disunity. It's the same in the church. When everyone's not participating, when everyone's not working properly, working effectively, there can be feelings of even resentment against those not contributing. Or maybe it's just a sadness It's just a sadness that some don't desire the fellowship or desire the serving together. Number four is that unity is produced where love abounds. Unity is produced where love abounds. For this, I would ask you to turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, just a little bit to the right there. 
in verse 12. Paul is about to give to the Colossian church a list of things that if they have indeed been chosen of God to be his children, then these attributes should be manifesting in their lives. The first and foremost towards one another in the church. He says this, chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord also forgave you, so also should you. Sorry, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, verse 14, put on love. That would be, by the way, agape love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now that phrase, beyond all these things, it it isn't trying to separate these things from love, but means in addition to, besides all of this, then we have this phrase, put on love. This is again in verse 14 there. Now, it would seem that that love is the umbrella attribute to all of these other attributes. For how could a Christian be any of these things in a meaningful way if love is absent? Well, you might be thinking, well, well no. No, I can. You know, I, I mean, even if it's somebody I don't like, you know, I can be kind to them and I can show them preference and I can act in a gentle manner and be patient with them and, and bear their burdens and even forgive them. Really? But for how long? Personally, I, I think if you are able to maintain these things with someone that you aren't, let's say, particularly fond of and you are a true believer, guess what? then you are agape loving them. Because that, again, is the definition of agape love. That you would be doing what is best and what is right for another person without seeking any benefit to yourself. In other words, you're not showing them kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and forgiveness because they are just such a doggone wonderful person. Or because you have benefited from them somehow. Or because you just really, you know, liked them a lot. I mean, maybe you do. But you are acting this way towards them because this is the way that God has so graciously dealt with you. And me. God has first loved you. Even in your sin. And because of this love, he extends his kindness and his humility and his gentleness and his patience and his forbearance and his forgiveness to you. Along with a lot of other things, right? Grace, mercy, you know, the list goes on. And furthermore, in this verse 14, you are told to put on love. This put on there. Is, is not there in the Greek text. It's borrowing the phrase from verse 12, which says to put on the other attributes. And this also indicates it's something that you have to proactively do. 
It's not just automatic or a given that because you have been chosen by God for salvation, then now you just naturally have this instant love for others. While it's true that upon being saved, God has given you his Holy Spirit. He has given you a new heart. He will sanctify you by conforming and transforming you into the image of his son. There's also the human responsibility which says that you also must choose to love And you're to wear love permanently, permanently. It's not something that you are to kind of take on and off at at your desire or your will. This is not put on love when you feel like it. It's not put on love because, oh, you're feeling the love from other people. Yeah, so um, uh, it's, it's, it's not put on love because you want something. And likewise, again, you're not to take it off when someone's not showing you love or because you don't like this person or because they're just kind of difficult to deal with. It's put it on and keep it on. That's it. But here's the blessing. Here is the blessing. Love unites perfectly. We see that, right? Which is the perfect bond of unity. Love is the glue that holds all of these other attributes together. Love unites the church, the universal body, as well as the local body. Love unites believers to Christ, and love unites believers to each other. And friends, when you have agape love for others, the natural consequence will be unity. Think about a husband and a wife. If a husband is, is truly agape, loving his wife, he is giving himself up for her, he is putting her interests above his own, he will make it so easy for his wife to submit to his leadership. Likewise, a loving wife who submits herself to his leadership will make it so very easy for husband to just agape love her all the more. And if both of these are are in operation, then it just creates this perfect unity cycle, if you will. They're both just satisfyingly feeding one another, and the cycle perpetuates and goes on and on and on. Now think about it in the context of the church, church context, when everyone is acting and behaving the way God has called them to as his children. We are showing the fruit of the Spirit towards one another and demonstrating kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and forgiveness. These attributes rub off on one another. They just do. As much as I I loved this production of Les Mis, I also, I love the story. It's a story of salvation. In the beginning, Jean Valjean is released on parole after spending 19 years doing hard labor for stealing a loaf of bread to feed his family because they were starving. A priest early on takes him in, showing just him amazing kindness and, and love, and even blesses him with giving him extra silver after Valjean. John has stolen from him. Then the priest tells him how, listen, Jean Valjean, you must, you must now turn things around and you need to start doing good for others. And, and Valjean is just greatly affected by the heart of this priest. And he gets saved. And then he uses his wealth and his position to indeed 
do good to others. In other words, the priest's godly attributes rubbed off on Valjean. And it's no different in the church, friends. We rub off on each other. Iron sharpens iron. It was designed to do that. And we imitate one another and we stimulate one another to love and good deeds, again, all united through and by this love. Now, going back to agape love being the perfect bond of unity, here's the, uh, here's the catch, if you will. We can't truly love apart from Christ. We can't truly love others apart from Christ. We can't truly love God apart from Christ. Agape love, of course, again, comes from God, his son Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, into our hearts. We love him because he first loved us. And what's so amazing about this is, you think, what was there to love? Right? Nothing, really. Nothing good. Nothing good. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What an amazing truth. Okay, so now as a believer indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you will then be able to demonstrate that same agape love to others, be it spouses, children, family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, bosses, students, acquaintances. Oh, dare we say even our enemies? Amen. Which brings us to number five. Unity brings about purpose. Unity brings about purpose. For this, I want you to uh, just back up to Philippians. One book to the left, Philippians chapter 2. Right there at the beginning, verses 1 to 2. Paul has just shared with the Philippian believers how for him to live is Christ and to die is gain and how he looks forward to continuing on with them for their progress and joy in the faith. He then exhorts them to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm in one spirit, one mind, for the faith of the gospel and not to be deterred by their opponents. He then says this in chapter 2, Verse 1, he says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now notice what Paul says makes up or constitutes a united body of believers. It's things like if there's encouragement in Christ. If Christ is our, well, Christ is our greatest encourager. He comes alongside us. He he helps us. He counsels us. He teaches us. Paul also says if there is this consolation of love, it also means comfort. Consolation means comfort comfort of love. God's love in the hearts of his people, and this is the Lord loving you as his own, tenderly caring for you. He says there's this fellowship of the Spirit. As believers, we have the unique privilege of being indwelt by the very Spirit of God, even the Spirit of Christ. God himself takes up residence in our hearts 
for those who would believe in his son. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. He says there has to be affection and compassion. And this is the deep, inward affection and compassion that can only come from Christ through his spirit into the hearts of the people that they then can demonstrate to others. And then lastly, Paul says, when these four elements are present, you have this church, and then Christians, as the church, can be of the same mind. Meaning we can be like-minded. We can, we can think in the same way. Maintaining the same love, the same sacrificial love that should be shown to all. We are united in spirit. Literally, it, it means one-souled people who are knit together in, in harmony, having the same desires, passions, ambitions, and intent on one purpose. Now, more specifically, what might that purpose be? Well, truth is, it could be multiple purposes. Multiple purposes. A church, for instance, such as our local church, we might be you know, intent at a certain period of time on, on community outreach, you know, or, or, or focused on Bible studies or the purpose of, as we heard today, evangelism or paying off our building debt. So it can be different things at different times. Again, there's always that overarching purpose of advancing God's kingdom, right? But the point is, where there is unity, there will be the same purpose. We will all be on the same page, desiring the same things, moving in the same direction, pursuing the same goals. And one of those goals, one of those purposes certainly can be our last one, which is unity is a witness to the world. Unity is a witness to the world. For this, turn back to John 17. Go to the Gospels there. John chapter 17. This is the beginning of Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's there in the upper room with the disciples the night before his crucifixion. In verse 21. We're going to skip down to verse 21. So John 17, verse 21. Jesus prays. That all may be one. Let me put some parentheses in here and say believers through the word of the disciples. That's what he's talking about. They may all be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Now, back there in 22, verse 22, who does Jesus say has given him glory. The Father. 
Jesus then says he passes that glory on to who? Them. Right? The disciples. Consequently, all believers. And what does this glory consist of? Huh. If we were to look back to John 1 and verse 14, John tells us this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So by sheer fact of Jesus leaving his heavenly realm and coming to earth as a man, then we get to see his glory. So God's glory here is really the essence and the attributes of the Father passed on to the Son now in the flesh. Sure, Jesus had all these attributes residing with the Father in the heavenly realm, but now that he has come down to earth as a human being, It's made clear that he maintains the full essence and attributes of God, here known as God's glory. And he passes that glory on to us. No, we don't get things like omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence, but we certainly get those communicable attributes of Christ, such as his love and his grace and his mercy and his truth and his justice and things like these. And so how does Jesus then pass on this glory to us? Well, it goes back to John 20, verse 22, and it says, He breathed on them, meaning the disciples, and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And for the rest of us, it really began on the day of Pentecost, when then the Holy Spirit goes forth and now begins to indwell every believer. So... God the Father passes on his glory right to the Son, then through the Holy Spirit gets passed on to us. And this is what unites. First, there's unity between the Father and the Son, and now us. Going back again, verse 21 and 23 say, Jesus says, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Jesus and the Father, I in them and you in me. So we who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are united with Christ and the Father through the Holy Spirit that we may be perfected in unity. In other words, that we would have perfect, or the word here means complete, Unity. It's a, in other words, a unity that comes to us by virtue of the fact that we are believers indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is not a unity that the world can have. It's only good for believers. It's a supernatural unity. Like the unity that comes from being even born into a family. In this case, we're born into the family of God and it just happens. We are perfected in unity with the Godhead, and consequently, each other. In that, again, positional sense, certainly. Now, what's the point of this kind of perfected unity? Verse 23 again. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So how is unity amongst Christians going to teach the world something about Jesus, the love of God, and the fact that God sent him into the world? 
Well, when Christians are united and we are acting the way that God would have us act, the world, as we've said many times in here, the world what? Sees something different. They see something different than what they see every day out there in the world. And this this canon should have a profound effect on people. And when the world sees Christians who truly love one another and love those outside the church, then it authenticates, it gives proof that the Father loves those who have put their faith in the Son. And when the world visibly sees the unity of the church, there will be those outside there who become convinced of who Jesus is and his mission, our mission, to see sinners get saved. And then the church's unity, friends, it's also foundational to evangelism and reaching the community for what's the point of outreach from some kind of fractured, splintered group. There will be zero appeal out there. Zero, none, absolutely nothing. If people from the evangelism team, they did their job, and man, somebody shows up here to church, and they see a fractured, splintered group, they're like, that's no different than the world. Why do I got to come here Sunday morning? May as well sleep in. Zero appeal. In fact, again, what would disunity in the church do to a watching, unbelieving world? They would say, those Christians, they aren't anything different or special from the rest of us. The unbelieving world. They would say, those Christians aren't anything different or special. There's there's just as much disagreement and division and rivalry and strife and backstabbing, power-mongering and hypocrisy. And it would frankly just drive them away. See ya. Just like a family that loves each other and does things together to which an outsider might say, man, that's so cool. I want to be a part of that family. That's the family I always dreamed of having or I want to be a part of them versus a family that you see that's fractured, that's broken. And though they say they love each other, it really seems pretty obvious they can't stand each other. To which you would go, I'm so glad I'm not a part of that family. And we got our problems, but, you know, we don't have that. Let that one go. All right, so we got to wrap things up here based on what we learned today. I'm going to give you some questions to think about this week, all right? Just some quick questions that I want you to ponder. Are you convinced of the value of unity? Secondly, how does being at peace with God and others preserve the unity of the Holy Spirit? Are you a peacemaker or are you a peace destroyer? How are you participating as a member of this local body? And if you're not, how come? Are you utilizing your gifts, talents, and abilities? Or are you letting others carry your load? How deep is your love for God and others? Do you only love when it's easy or when you will benefit in some way? Are you putting on love and contributing to the unification of the body or are you causing its division? And what are some of the unified purposes of Calvary Bible Church and how are you playing a part in those? And lastly, how can we as a unified church more effectively be a witness to the world? Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for just some of these tremendous truths that we have been able to mine and glean from your word. And what a shame it would be if we just left this all here 
on the table and walked out these doors and didn't seek to address some of these questions in our own hearts and, and Lord, with one another. And we, we, we want to be a unified body who loves you, loves your son, loves your word, loves each other, and we want that to be seen out there in an unbelieving, very unloving at times world. We pray this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.